Today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. What we see here in Matthew 21 is it's really portraying for us the most significant coronation the world has ever seen and ever will see. I hope you know what a coronation is, right? Kings and queens have these, and and they're usually very uh, ornate, huge pageantry. I mean, just look at the ones that have gone on in England, for example. I mean, whenever there's, you know, a a wedding or a funeral or, you know, a a new monarch comes to the throne, they they got to bring out all the gold and the silver and the, you know, the the fancy costumes, and they got to make a huge deal out of that. But what we see here with Jesus' coronation, the king's, the, the king's coronation here is very different from the, the ones maybe you've read about and heard of in the past. And one reason is because it was a true coronation of a true king. In fact, he's not just any king, is he? Because the Bible calls Jesus the king of kings and lord of lords. So Jesus was affirmed as king and was, in a sense here, inaugurated into his kingship. Remember, in the previous chapters of Matthew, Jesus has spent most of his ministry up in the northern region of Israel, up in Galilee, and now he's finally made his way down, and he's, he's coming back to Jerusalem. But as we, as we read this passage, notice how much pomp and circumstance do you see here? What, what I see is just ordinary pageantry. There's not, there's little pomp and circumstance. Traditionally, by the way, this coronation of King Jesus has been called Jesus' triumphal entry. It was his last major public appearance. Uh, this, remember, this is, this is the beginning of, of Jesus' last week, uh, his, his last earthly, you know, week on earth. Uh, it's the last major public exper- appearance, and uh, eventually, in about a week from here, he's going to be uh, approximately he's going to be crucified, and so this is a very important event in his divine ministry on earth. Uh, sadly, though, it's an event that is frequently misunderstood. Uh, a lot of people don't understand what's the significance of this. Uh, there, you might see dramatiz- uh, dramatizations of this. It's acted out in various forms, but um, you have to wonder, how, how often do people really understand what's going on here? It is a significant event, and I'll, I'll show you why it's significant and, and the various reasons of its significance. But let's read together Matthew 21, verse 1. Look at verse 1. These are the words of the living God. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. 
They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That ends the paragraph. So what is the true significance of Christ's coronation? Why is this in the Bible? Why, why is Matthew of all people? And he's not the only one who writes about this, but remember Matthew's writing to Jews. His main purpose in writing to the Jews is to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He's their king. So why wouldn't you have the king's coronation if you're trying to show that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's their king? Why not have the coronation? Well, of course. Matthew's showing that he is their king. That's one of the significances you need to understand. But let's look at verses 4 and 5. We'll see here the true significance of Christ's coronation is, number one, it fulfills biblical prophecy. This event fulfills biblical prophecy. If your Bible is like mine, look at verse 5. Does verse 5 look different to you in your Bible than the other verses? And by looking different, I mean it's still using words and letters and, and, and probably the same font. But is it indented? Do you see that, verse 5? Hopefully your Bible does that. And when your Bible does do that, it's, it's helping you to see an Old Testament quotation. Uh, it's pretty obvious that it's coming from the Old Testament when you look at verse 4, right? Verse 4 tells us that that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And also, hopefully, you have a Bible that tells you which prophet. Uh, now, Matthew's actually quoting from Zechariah, in fact, from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which which says this. I put it on the screen here for you. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Very similar, isn't it? So Matthew's quoting from Zechariah, by the way, which was several hundred years before Christ ever came to earth in human flesh. So from this text, and many others, by the way, we could look at, it's clear that Jesus was always in control of the events that that were affecting his life. He knew exactly about those Old Testament prophecies. He knew that he was the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. He, In fact, he's the one initiating his own coronation here when he purposely sends those disciples to go get an animal for him to ride on to come into Jerusalem. And what is he doing? He's, he's, he's setting in motion a series of events that are eventually going to culminate in his purpose in coming to earth. 
He's told us several times. He's foretold at least three times in Matthew alone, I have come, why? I must suffer, I'll be mocked, scorned, I'm going to die on the cross, I will be crucified, I'm going to be dead, yes, but I will rise again. I've come to set my people free. The two disciples were told to go into the village here. And Jesus, in fact, this is, this is no surprise to him. He knows what's going on. He's told them, you're going to go and you're going to find this donkey. And there's also not just going to be the, the mother, but there's going to be a baby donkey as well. They're going to be together. Now, why does the Bible talk about this? Well, uh, my assumption is the mother donkey was brought along here in order to help her her young her young one um, to cooperate, you, you know. You, hopefully, you know a few things about donkeys. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about donkeys, but one of the things I do know about donkeys is sometimes they don't like to cooperate. They can be stubborn, which is why the Bible compares us to donkeys sometimes, because we are stubborn. Donkeys don't always cooperate. And, and this one's never been ridden before. And so it probably would have been helpful to have the mother come along. Uh, I'm assuming that's a reason, make it more cooperative. So again, we see that Jesus is all-knowing. In other words, he's omniscient. He knows where the donkey is. He knows that the donkey has a young one. It's never been ridden. He knows exactly where to send the disciples to get this donkey. And he knows there there might possibly be some conflict in taking someone's donkeys. And so he tells them, this is what you tell them. I mean, you think about this. How else could Jesus have known that the donkey and her colt would have been exactly where they were if Jesus didn't know everything? So again, we see one who is human, but also we see his deity. Two natures in one forever here. And by the way, Jesus also knew the disciples would be questioned. That's logical, right? Imagine if you owned a donkey, the donkey's tied up at your house, and some strangers come along and start untying your donkey and start taking your donkey away. What are you going to say? Are you going to say, uh, great. Well, if you don't like the donkeys, you might say, good, take them away. But... I'm assuming that the owner wanted those donkeys. And so he further instructed his disciples. He said, if anyone says to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Well, how did Jesus know how to say that? How did he know that? It's because he knows everything. He's all-knowing. When you compare Matthew to Luke, Luke says the owners, the Luke actually, he actually says what the owner said. Here's what they said. What are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. That's what Luke says. We also learn from the other Gospels that the colt had never been ridden. And uh, you say, why, why did the Gospels even mention that fact? Well, just think about it. Uh, that would have been a, a gesture, a, a sign of respect and honor. The, he's, he's the first one who gets to ride this donkey. It's like saying, hey, this, this animal has been specially reserved for King Jesus. And it was. 
God did it just for Jesus to honor his son. Well, Matthew explains that this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. That's what verse 4 says. So as we look at Jesus' life, Jesus' entire life and his, his three years of ministry were marked by two overriding purposes. Let me just highlight these for you. Number one, Jesus' number one overriding purpose was to do his Father's will. We see a couple examples, but we'll see that in chapter 26. Several times there, Jesus says, I have come to do my Father's will. That's the thing he cared about the most. But number two, we also see in Matthew, he wanted to fulfill those Old Testament prophecies. Jesus knew he was the Messiah. He knew he was the King of Israel. So those are the the two big purposes of why Jesus did what he did. So Jesus is, is doing this to fulfill prophecy. Number two, why is this event significant? Because it shows Jesus' humble obedience. It shows his humble obedience. You have to understand, Jesus' death is important, okay? His resurrection is important. We don't want to underestimate that, but... Jesus had to come and fulfill the law, and one of the things he had to do is live an obedient, perfect life. It's interesting in verse 5. Look what it says there in verse 5. Uh, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. And look at the next word. What is it? Of all the things we could say about Jesus, it says he is humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Look at that first phrase. You might wonder, well, who is the daughter of Zion? Who's that? Well, the daughter of Zion, you have to understand, is is referring to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem's often called Zion. Uh, There is a Mount Zion, that is a part of Jerusalem. It's, it's the city's highest and most prominent hill, which is why Jerusalem is sometimes called Mount Zion. And notice where this prophecy comes from. Verse, again, verse 5 is from the prophet Zechariah. 500 years earlier, he's, he's predicting that the people of Israel would hail their Messiah as their king, and here's Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's showing his humility. He's mounted on a donkey. Of all things, (laughs) the king of kings, he's the one who made that donkey. He's the creator. Of all the things he could have done to to ride into Jerusalem, he chose a donkey. It seems strange to to many people, and probably uh, certainly for, for kings of the past, they would have considered that totally inappropriate to ride on a donkey. If you, if you know anything about history, uh, kings, they, they would pick something that was a little bit more special, more majestic, if you will. Often they would try to pick some uh, white stallion to ride into town, showing off, hey, I'm, I'm good, I'm great, I'm awesome. Jesus didn't do that. 
Maybe a king might choose some majestic chariot that's overlaid with gold being pulled by several horses. But Jesus didn't do that either. He chose a humble donkey. And that is what God's prophet predicted here, and it's what God's Son did. Why did He do that? Because that was God's plan. He's fulfilling God's plan. And Jesus knew that one day He would be exalted, but He knew that this was not His time for exaltation. This was His time for humiliation. So Jesus is showing us humble obedience. And number three, it highlights Jesus as both king and prophet. This is significant because it's showing us two of Christ's offices. He is prophet, priest, and king. He, he fulfills all three of those. But in this passage, it's, it's particularly highlighting the two there, king and prophet. And we see that in particularly verses 8 through 11. Let's just think about this. What, what's the crowd doing? Well, Jesus, he begins riding into the city, and, and there's this huge multitude that's there because this is Passover time. Uh, some have estimated there could have been up to 2 million people around the Jerusalem area, and, and there would have been hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of sheep, lambs, and animals being slaughtered during this time. People from all around coming to Jerusalem to during that Passover period, to offer their sacrifices to God. And that was certainly no mistake that Jesus would have picked that time to come into Jerusalem to show He is the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. So the, the multitudes, they're there, and notice what they're doing. They've, they've obviously heard Jesus is coming. Maybe they just heard about this, the healing of the two blind men, which is in chapter 20. People know they, they've heard all these wonderful things about Jesus, up, all the various things that have gone up in Galilee. And here he is. He's making his way to Jerusalem. They're excited. And what are they doing? They're spreading their garments in the road for Jesus to walk over on a donkey. <laughs> now, why, why were they doing that? Well, this was an ancient custom for citizens to throw their garments in the road. It was typical when, whenever their monarch would come along, usually riding something other than a donkey, they would, uh, they would, they would put their clothes on the ground. It symbolized their respect for him and their submission to his authority. It's, 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 it's almost like a, it's a, well, this is what it is. It's a symbolic gesture to say, hey, we are placing ourselves at your feet. And you can walk on us if necessary. It was a great sign of respect and submission. And then there were some people, you notice here in verses 8 through 11, there were people that were cutting palm branches and laying their, their, their um, branches at Jesus' feet as well, which is why sometimes this, this is called Palm Sunday. So these people are... They're laying their, their branches from these trees. They're spreading them on the road. It's interesting, when you read John chapter 12, we learn that the branches were from the palm trees. Matthew doesn't say that. And so this is something that's symbolic of salvation and joy. This is kind of typical of, of Israelites. They, they love to do this sort of thing. 
And so there's great excitement as this multitude's proclaiming praise to the Messiah. The expectations the Messiah would bring deliverance were so great here that the crowd's just kind of getting caught up in this, this mob hysteria. But they didn't fully understand what's going on. But nevertheless, they're, what's happening here is, is fully in accord with God's plan, even though they're, they, they didn't know that they were actually fulfilling prophecy in the process. Notice what the crowd is saying here. In verse 9, they're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now, let's, let's just think about that. Why are they shouting that? Well, the Hebrew word, first of all, Hosanna, very strong plea, which means save now. Save now. <clears throat> An interesting word. You, you could take that in, in, in at least two different ways, can't you? You can think, well, save us physically. Or you can think of, save us spiritually. Well, you think, which way do you think they're thinking? Are they thinking, okay, Jesus is going to save us physically or spiritually? Well, I can tell you they're not thinking spiritual here. They're thinking Jesus is going to save us physically. And so here's the crowd on that day. They're, they're not interested in Jesus saving their souls. They're only interested in Jesus saving their nation. Like the twelve... Remember the twelve? They didn't understand why Jesus had come in His first coming. And so neither does this crowd. They're wondering, well, hey, is, is Jesus, is He truly the Messiah? And if He is, is this the time He's going to overthrow those evil Romans and set us free from Roman tyranny? They thought maybe this was the time He's going to show Himself as conqueror. The people wanted a conquering, reigning Messiah who would come in great military power, throw off the, the brutal rule of the Roman Empire, and, and then finally establish an, an is, a kingdom for Israel. That's what they wanted. You, you can see that imagery from the Old Testament, but it's easy to get Jesus' first coming messed up with His second coming. And that's what they were doing. It's clear Jesus didn't come to make war with Rome, but He wanted to make peace with God for men. And notice also here the multitude acknowledged Jesus as son of David. Right from the very beginning, Matthew is showing that Jesus is son of David. Read Matthew chapter 1. Now why is he doing that? Well, they're crying out for the Messiah's deliverance. They're, they're pleading, hey, save us now, O great Messiah. That's what they're saving. They're saying, literally. And this is cool because they're actually quoting from a very popular uh, psalm of praise. That often the, the group, there's a group of psalms called the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 uh, going all the way to Psalm 118. That group of psalms is called the Hallel Psalms, the, the song of praise to God. They would do that during Passover time. And the Jews had done that for hundreds of years. And the, the one they're particularly focusing on here is Psalm 118. Which, if you read that, I encourage you to read that. That is a psalm of deliverance. That's a psalm of deliverance, and that's the one they're quoting from. That's really cool, I think. But notice the multitude knew who Jesus was. They know a few things about Jesus. Of course, they don't know everything. But they did not understand, or, or at least truly believe, what they knew. 
Because if they really believed, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus just several days later. They were right in their belief that he was the Messiah, but they're they're actually wrong in their belief about what sort of a Messiah, what sort of a deliverer was Jesus. They knew he's a king, but they didn't understand the nature of his kingship. They, you know, they it, it's obvious because just a few days later, this crowd that's shouting Hosanna to the son of David, they turn against him and say, crucify him. So the people wanted Jesus on their own terms. They would not bow to a king who was not of their liking, even though he was the son of God, even though he is the son of God. They wanted Jesus to destroy Rome, but they didn't want Jesus to deal with their sin. They loved their sin. They loved their superficial religion called Judaism. But Jesus didn't come to destroy Rome. And he certainly would not deliver them on their terms. Jesus came on his terms, on his Father's terms. And many people today are are just like these people. It's very easy for us to sit here in our self-righteous attitudes and say, man, those people are stupid. Why did they do that? Well, we do the same thing. Oh, heaps of people in church today on Sunday will be doing this exact thing. And some, many, many who aren't in church will do it as well. Many people are open to a Jesus who they think, for example, will give them health, wealth, and prosperity. But when Jesus doesn't give them that health, wealth, and prosperity, they turn against Jesus and reject Him. Oh, it's happening all over the world today. The people, you know, they, they form their own God in their image, and when the image doesn't, doesn't do what they want, then they get angry against that image. And so just like the multitude here at this triumphal entry, they, they might sing loud praises to God one day, but when Jesus doesn't satisfy their selfish desires, they rebel. So I guess one thing we can learn from this is we need to beware. We need to beware of our expectations of Jesus. We're going to make sure our expectations of Jesus match up with God's expectations of Jesus. Someone wisely told me, I, I can't remember, but it's unrealistic expectations will destroy your contentment. Unrealistic expectations destroy our contentment. And, and so these people had... Uh, expectations of Jesus that were not going to be met in his first coming. Which is why they ended up getting angry and turning against him. Well, let's just think about these Romans. Were were the Israelites uh, justified in wanting Jesus to overthrow the Romans? Well, of course they were. I mean, the Romans were godless, cruel oppressors. It's interesting, the Lord would not allow them to survive indemnifully. The Roman Empire, as strong as it was at one point, did come to an end. But the Romans were not his people's greatest enemy. Oppressors are not our greatest enemy. Your boss is not your greatest enemy. That one who is a pain in the neck to you is not your greatest enemy. What is your greatest enemy? It's sin. Your own indwelling sin is your greatest enemy And Jesus came to deal with your greatest enemy. 
And it's from that that they refused to be delivered. They didn't want to be delivered from their sin. God would allow the temple in Jerusalem to be destroyed long before the Romans were taken out. In fact, it was not until, uh, it was in fact in uh, A.D. 70, in the year 70, that the Romans came into Jerusalem and sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And, and to this day, uh, there, there's, there's basically nothing left of Israel's temple. Well, as far as the true intent of the people were concerned, Jesus' coronation was just an empty facade, kind of like what Hollywood does when they make a movie. You ever seen those, those empty facades? I mean, on the front, it, it might look like a really cool building. But then, then you walk through the door and it's like, oh, there's nothing here. <laughs> it's just a facade. Well, that's what's going on here. They're just playing make-believe. They're dressed up for this make-believe occasion. The, the words of the multitude were right. They're, they're saying some good stuff here, aren't they? Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We can't fault the words, per se. But where's their heart? Where is their heart in all of this? Is their heart in the right place? Well, in any case, he had not come at that time to be crowned. Jesus had come to be crucified. Well, one day, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ will be crowned as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's going to be in a way that's suited for one who is the king of kings. But that wasn't in his first coming. And so when the time of rejection is over, the Bible says in Philippians 2, that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day's coming. But my friend, don't confuse his first coming with his second coming. That's going to happen at his second coming. He will be exalted as he deserves to be. But the first time he came, he is coming to provide mankind salvation. He's dealing with our greatest problem. When he comes again, then he's going to display his sovereignty for the world to see. Let's just think about what's going on here in verses 10 and 11 for a moment. We'll end with this. Verse 10 says, When he entered Jerusalem, that the whole city was stirred up, it's interesting what they say. Notice what Scripture says. This, these people are saying, well, who is this? <laughs> they've, they've been shouting Hosanna to the Son of David, and now there's people in Jerusalem saying, who is this? What's all this shouting going on? And the crowd said, well, hey, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Matthew's account of Jesus' entry has an element of confusion. Frankly, as I've been reading over this several times, I'm, I'm uh, this doesn't make sense. Uh, I mean, is this a different group, or do they, these people not understand what they're saying, or what, what what is really going on here? Well, Jesus, you know, he keeps riding on his donkey. Eventually, makes his way into Jerusalem. Uh, I can imagine that the crowds eventually die down, and the, the cheering subsides, and Maybe maybe he's he's encountering these residents of Jerusalem. Um, you know they've been hearing all the the cheering going on, and maybe they're the ones who are asking, "Well, who is this?" And so the best response they could give was, "Hey, this is the prophet Jesus 
from Nazareth in Galilee. So it seems that the that most of them didn't know what they're doing. One commentator said this. I got a quote here on the screen for you. They heard Jesus' message. They attested to his miracles and they even acknowledged his divinity, but they rejected his saviorhood and his lordship. They were totally earthbound, materialistic, and self-satisfied. They were interested only in the kingdoms of this world, not the kingdom of heaven. They would have accepted Jesus as an earthly king, but they would not have him as their heavenly king. End quote. I think that's a very wise comment for us to consider. Well, as we think about this, we're in danger of doing the same thing. And so we really need to ask this question that Matthew's been driving home to us. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? And so in case you've never done so, my friend, let me encourage you to nail this down. Be totally assured in in your thinking and in your beliefs to get this answer straight. Who is Jesus Christ? Matthew doesn't, and, and the Holy Spirit doesn't want you going away with any doubts at all of who is Jesus. He is the King. He is the Messiah. Matthew's presented Jesus as God's King. So, my friend, where do you stand on this issue? Where do you stand on this issue? What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is the King? Do you believe He is King of kings and Lord of lords? This is important what you believe because beliefs have consequences. Beliefs are going to drive what you do. They're also going to affect how you feel. It, it does affect your emotions. Do you believe that He's the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior? Do you believe that He's your Savior? I remember when I became a believer as little boy, one of the things that God opened up my, my mind to understand is uh, Jesus was not just the Savior of the world, but He's my Savior. I believe Jesus died for the world, but there was a point, I remember for several years there, I was thinking, well, uh, that's nice, but He's not my Savior. He didn't die for me. He hasn't dealt with my sins. But then God finally did open my eyes by His grace through His Spirit to show me, no, He's my Savior. He's your Savior. He died in my place. My atonement. My substitutionary atonement. My friend, do you believe that? Have you trusted Him for the salvation of your soul? Are you continuing to put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of your soul? And so, well, if you, if you have, then we need to continue that. Because it's very easy. I find myself, as I go throughout my week, very easy to get discouraged, to, to have a noisy soul. I've, I've had a noisy soul this past week. And what, what causes that is unbelief. The unbelief uh, clouds my heart and my mind. I start... I start meditating on the wrong content, and then I start, and then the, the emotions are affected by that unbelief. I, I've lost sight of Jesus. I'm, 
I'm not looking to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith. Instead, I'm looking to, you know, people and things. And I'm, I'm, Jesus is not my treasure. Something else is my treasure. And when that treasure breaks down and doesn't fulfill my life, then oh, pfft, my life falls apart. Maybe that's happened to you this week. And so that's why it's important for us to nail this question down. Who is Jesus to you, you personally? This is who Jesus is, but do you believe what you believe? And so, my friend, you need to understand something. Jesus is not insane. (laughs) He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what he's doing. He knew the prophecies he was fulfilling. And Jesus is not a liar. Some have accused him of being a liar. So Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He's the one who Matthew proclaimed him to be. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and the Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the question for you, the most important thing, there's there's a lot of things we could think about, but the most important thing you need to settle is, who is Jesus Christ? He's described as all these things I just talked about here. The question is, do you actually believe that? Are you living that out in your life? So that's not going to happen without the Spirit's enabling. So may God give us His grace to believe this truth.